Hello, and welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard. Our guest this week is Dr. Chris Winter. He is the author of the new book, The Rested Child. Now, we're going to talk about you know sleep disorders in your child and what that looks like for behavior patterns, uh, behavioral problems, but also how to correct your sleep and some myths about sleep that you may be operating under the assumptions of and are just wrong. So again, Dr. Chris Winter has some amazing insights into that. Very excited to bring that to you. Of course, before we get to any of that, we need to hear a quick word from our sponsors, including Rocket Mortgage. This part of Intelligence for Life, the podcast is presented by Rocket Mortgage. Want to see your loan options, adjust payments, and closing costs online in real time? Rocket can. All right. Thank you to uh, everybody that makes this possible. Here we go. Uh, I'm just pumped to bring this to you. My interview with Dr. Chris Winter. Dr. Chris Winter, author of The Rested Child. Thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate your time. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, Gib. I really, really have been looking forward to this for a while. Likewise. So look, the, the subtitle of your book is Why Your Tired, Wired, or Irritable Child May Have a Sleep Disorder, and, and, and thankfully, and how to help. So uh, I, I'll say this. I'm gonna start, I have three kids. They are, um, they're all under 10 years old. And, uh, I, I know in my experience, it does not matter what time I put my kids to bed. They wake up at the same time every day. And I can see in their behavior, depending on when I put them to bed, how, uh, how difficult they are. And like when we, we just started school. So, uh, at the end of the day, they're much more tired than they were over the summer. So as a result, I've got, you know, all, it's just, it's such an annoying time to try to do dinner with these overtired kids. Cause I can see the stuff. So one is how, how unique is my experience and how do I fix my children? I think your children are probably okay. Um, <laughs> I've got three kids. You're all under the age of 10. I'm all over the age of 17. Oh, so wow. there is a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, the, the idea that your kids sort of, no matter what, kind of have that military academy sense of this is when revelry is and this right. is when we start our day right. is actually probably a sign that you and your partner or whoever is in charge of all the, the sleep training did a really good job. I mean, because that's really what you want. And one of the things I talk about in the book is trying to get away from stressing the bedtime so much, particularly with little kids. This idea you've got to go to bed now or else terrible things will happen to you. Right. It's not a great relaxing way to, to spend <laughs> the day, yeah. but rather you sort of greet them all at the same time. And if you have kids that nap, that those naps tend to end at the same time with a smile and, 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 and sort of nonchalance. But the fact that they've gotten to the place now where they're as young as they are and, and no matter what, they have this sort of set time where they begin their day is actually really healthy. Good. Okay. But so how do I get them to bed to get them adequate sleep, uh, knowing that they're going to wake up at that time without creating that stress? Because it's the same thing with adult insomnia. You begin to stress about going to sleep and that makes it harder to fall asleep, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it's a couple, a couple things about that. Number one, it's important to understand that insomnia is not the same thing as not being able to sleep. Okay. If you're looking for medical situations where people can't sleep, you'll never find them because they don't exist in nature. So mm. what insomnia is, is exactly what you said. It's a stress or fear about sleep that's creating some sort of performance anxiety where it might take somebody a little longer to fall asleep than normal. And their response to it is negative, meaning if I meet somebody at a dinner party and they say it takes me two hours to fall asleep, my first question is, how do you feel about that? If the answer is, I don't care, you'll never have a day of insomnia in your life. If it's, oh my God, I've got to sleep because I host radio shows and produce media and I've got three kids that are driving me crazy, then you can see where that cycle could really spin out of control. So to me, what your job is as a parent is to make sure that your children have an adequate access to sleep. Mm. Um, and one of the things I think is really important, particularly as your kids reach the ages that you are, yours are, is that you stress being in bed, resting, unplugging from situations a little bit more than sleep. So what I would say is, hey, kids, it's time for the nap. It's time for our family's rest. It's time for bed at night. Um, how old is your, old, your, your eldest child? She's nine. So for the nine-year-old, you might say, okay, look, you know, it, I want you in mom and I want you in your bed about eight o'clock right now. Here are your books. 
hear your baseball cards that you love, hear your art supplies, hear your dolls, whatever you're into, there it is. You can play with those and look at those as late as you'd like. Um, you decide when you want to go to bed. Now, what you don't tell them is you're going to wake them up at the same time every day. So what we really try to cultivate is this idea that there's a saying in, in um, martial arts, if you're trying to control a person, control the head, the body will follow. And we always tell parents the same thing. Control the wake up time. The bedtime will follow. Mm. And that's where sometimes parents kind of they're like, well, our kids were up so late and we couldn't get them to sleep and they're overtired. So we let them sleep later the next day because we didn't think they had gotten enough time to sleep because they were up so late. And that can sometimes be the beginning of the end when you lose that set wake up time. Right. So again, it's not a punishment. It's just our family starts every morning at 730 and you will too, no matter what happens. And so right. as kids get older, they're like, oh, dad, can you just take me to school at lunchtime? Because I've got nothing first and second period. And mm -hmm. that's where you've got to be like, no, we're going to get up and start our day. You had a rough night. I bet tonight will be much better. Yeah. Uh, my issue with that is is this. I, as a parent, I, uh, I put my kids to bed and then I get like a couple of hours of, of the only time of the day that is mine where I get to be me. I get to watch the shows I want to watch. I get to do the things that I want to do. Uh, so I have a tendency to stay up later than I should to, yes. uh, to then, you know, ruin my sleep. And so then, especially like on a Saturday morning, yep. I then want my kids to stay asleep a little bit longer on Saturday, even though they, that even though they don't. Uh, am I just ruining that? I mean, how do I maintain my humanity while also, while also keeping my sleep in check aligned with theirs? Yeah, this is the, really the crux of the problem. I mean, the idea that we need to coach children to sleep is, is not true. Like, every child that's born is going to sleep about nine hours or every 24 they're alive. I've, I've never encountered a kid who can't sleep. Mm -hmm. What you've got is a kid with varying ranges of sleep. Um, some kids need a lot of sleep. They're the good sleepers and the kids that don't require a lot of sleep are the bad sleepers because they're as up as late as you are they're right. up first thing in the morning. And so what you really look at when you've got issues related to kids sleep is efficiency and predictability. Like how predictable is their nap or their sleep at night? Because what'll kill you is the kid that you put down and you're constantly waiting for them to scream or call out or not be able to sleep. So in the time that you're waiting for that to happen, you never get anything done. Like in the hospital, like there would be nights where we would get very few calls from the emergency room, but I was always so stressed about it. I wouldn't, I couldn't sleep well on call or I would, you know, like, well, I'm not going to get in bed because as soon as I get in bed, the air's going to call and somebody's going to need a needle stuck in their neck and I'm just, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to be up running around. So, and then those are the nights where nothing would happen. Right, you know, right, right. You get right. a lot of sleep. You're like, I actually didn't because yeah. I was... So, you know, we want to get kids on a predictable schedule, but I think the parent issue of I've got work I need to do, that's the conflict that really creates the problem of when are you having time for yourself? And I think every parent deserves that. Right. And there's this concept of revenge procrastination, yeah. meaning yep. the kids are in bed, you got to watch 30 minutes of a Handmaid's Tale episode, yep. and now it's go to bed now to get the sleep you need to be healthy, or... This is the first time all day I've had some quiet and some peace to yes. do some stuff I want to do. So it's very easy for that to kind of because you can operate on five hours of sleep. I mean, right. people can do it. it's not healthy, right. but you can do it. So that's where people get into is as long as I get my five hours, I'm fine. Well, not really, but, mm -hmm. but we can pretend you are. <laughs> I want to go back to something you said, and then I want to pivot to something else. So you, you mentioned like giving my oldest the opportunity to. Uh, hang out in bed and just kind of wind down in her bed with some activities that falls against what I've heard a lot of adult sleep experts talk about, which is that you want to leave your bed for non-activities for uh, just sleep, like that reading in bed is a bad idea. You want to read in the living room and then go to bed when you want to go to bed. Uh, are we creating bad sleep habits by doing that? Or is it, is it really, is the, is the pinnacle to make sure that the, that the kid is relaxed at bedtime? Yeah, I think that's what it is. I mean, I've never liked that piece of advice that's been given by adults. It, it means well, but it gives a weird message. I'm having trouble falling asleep. So the, the idea is, okay, give yourself 15 minutes, and if you haven't fallen asleep, 
leave the bedroom and go do something else. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, number one. So now I've got a shot clock with my sleep. Okay, here we go. 15 minutes. Right. 13 minutes. Okay, this isn't working. I mean, if you can't fall asleep, having a clock count down <laughs> 15 minutes help. is not going to help. Even anything. if you can, it messes with it. So so here's the a better way to state this, I think. It's how do you feel about being in bed awake? If the answer is, I don't mind. I can sit here and think about this podcast I want to do, and I've got some ideas for another show I'd like to do, and I've got to figure out something to get my mom for her birthday. Like, mm -hmm. if you're happy in bed, understand that resting does a lot for our body. In fact, there are studies that say cognitively and physically, if you're good at resting and meditating, it's almost the same as sleep. So this idea that the only thing good happening in bed is making a baby or being unconscious, I think sells resting short, which is the reason why I name my book The Rested Child instead right. of The Slept Child. The second thing is resting's under your control. If I told you, Gib, rest, you can do it. If I said, Gib, fall asleep, my guess is you can't. And, and, and the fact that there's a camera pointed at you might make it even harder. Right. So what I tell people is, if you're in bed awake and you're frustrated, forget the 15 minutes, get out and go do something. Like, don't be in bed frustrated. But if you're in bed, you went to the bathroom, you got back in bed, and, and you're not falling asleep right away, but you're comfortable there, the partner that you love is next to you, you've got some food in the pantry, it's 68 degrees, and you're happy, I'd say stay right there until you either fall back to sleep or you're not. Okay. Okay. Well, that's again, that that's that's good advice that that falls in the uh, that flies in the face of some of the previous things we've we've heard. Uh, let's pivot back to kids specifically. How do we uh, as parents begin to identify what some of these uh, underrested children are doing, and and how do we begin to identify that maybe sleep is the thing that they really need? Yeah, and so you know, I think that getting your child to sleep through the night is is a is a great goal. To me, it's the first of many to come. Um, and, and unfortunately, we, we have a dialogue in this country that once you've gotten your baby to sleep through the night, they're pretty much good until like they rush a sorority. Like there's a lot of years in between there that there can be problems. <laughs> to yeah. me, I think that the one thing I stress with parents is stop looking for a kid that looks like, you, you know, your coworker in a meeting where you know, in the meeting, they're kind of sitting there and doing that head bob mm -hmm, thing or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Kids will never look like that. You're the kid. You're the father of three kids under the age of 10. If I said, describe what sleepiness looks like in your kids, my guess is it's like running around the house with, you know, paper bags on their head and mm -hmm. screaming and laughing. And it, it looks anything but excessively sleepy. Right. So the key with kids and teens when we're looking for sleep disorders are we're looking for these other softer signs that have nothing to do with the kid fall. I mean, if a kid's falling asleep in class, you have passed marker number one and sign number two and yeah. hit number three, and you're already in like the deeper level now. But, you know, it's really things like school decline, changes in mood. For some kids, it's a reemergence of like bedwetting or they were on this sort of 80th percentile height and weight track. And over the last two visits to the pediatrician, they've dropped down to the 40th percentile for no clear reason. So these are not things that typically you would think, oh, well, my kid's gone from the 80th percentile to the 40th percentile. He's got sleep apnea. Like these are not things that sort of go hand in hand. Right. But, you know, as a parent, if you kind of arm yourself with that information, you know, a kid who's you know, eight years old is being told you're you know, being told he's got ADHD. Yeah. I don't think any kid should be diagnosed with ADHD until they have a sleep evaluation, because when you screw up the sleep of a kid, they will have attention problems. And frankly, when you screw the kid attention up with the sleep of an adult, they'll have attention sure. problems. We just don't look for it like we do in kids. What percentage do you think of kids? Well, I mean, is that why the is that why the the prescription for ADHD is essentially amphetamines? Because absolutely, it's, because it's so a sleep you think to yourself, you've got a kid who sits in class and taps his glasses on the desk mm -hmm. and jerks the hair of the girl next to him, always getting in trouble, always disruptive, always blurting out. If you ask your the teacher, describe that kid to me. The one word they will not use is sleepy. Right. So they'll say he's hyperactive, he's disruptive, he's not right. on task, all these little code words. My parents and my wife are all teachers. They have these certain ways mm -hmm. of describing things. So it's interesting that we give those children hype, like stimulants, yeah. and they work to some extent in that, oh, his, kids, his, his behavior is much better. Well, for a lot of kids, the stimulant works because 
deep down, the problem is they're actually sleepy. Mm. And for kids, they don't like the feeling of sleepiness. I mean, adults right. don't either, but it doesn't feel good to be hungry or thirsty or suffocating and struggling to get air. And it doesn't feel good for kids to be sleepy. So they'll do things to try to get rid of that feeling. Mm. So absolutely. There's a lot of kids out there who've been diagnosed with ADHD who absolutely do not have it. It's actually a sleep disorder. Interesting. And what, what, what percentage roughly do you think of our, of our diagnoses of ADHD is, is an actual mental disorder versus sleep? It's a difficult number to, to put out there. And, mm. and when you look at the estimations, they vary wildly. I think that we could comfortably say a quarter of kids out there who have ADHD probably have an underlying sleep. So if we took 100 kids who've got diagnosed ADHD, the medications are working wonderfully for them, they're doing much better in school, and ran them through a sleep study, I, I think a, a bottom number, a quarter of them would come back with something wrong with their sleep. Wow. There's a researcher up in New England, a woman named Mary Karskadden, who said the number was probably much higher. I mean, she, this is not my unique thought. I always feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants that just never got listened to. But, you know, she felt like that number was massive. Yeah. I mean, that is a massive number. When you think about the amount of prescriptions that are written, the amount of kids whose brains we are we are messing with, the, the yeah, way that we track absolutely. kids in school. I mean, you're start you're talking about some serious numbers that could be that could be fixed. I mean, millions of kids. That's 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 the key right there. Can be fi easily fixed. Like sometimes with like a tonsillectomy kind of situation. You know, like you know, it's amazing. And that's what's one of the best things about my job is to see the follow up. And that's why I started every chapter with a, 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 a case. And and they're pretty close to being the thing that we saw. We altered things to protect identities and whatnot. But we see these things all the time. So it's really, I mean, I'm a neurologist by training. Mm -hmm. We can't really help a lot with strokes and we can't really help a lot with dementia and, and MS and there's some good treatments and whatnot. But still, it's these are kind of sad, difficult conditions. Sleep's wonderful because a lot of these things we can fix if we know we're what we're looking for. That's the problem is that everybody knows grandpa's struggling with his memory. So we get to see those people. Nobody misses that diagnosis for 15 years. Right. But the average child with narcolepsy, it's a 10 to 15 year delay between symptom onset and when a doctor finally puts two and two together and says, oh, this is narcolepsy. It wasn't depression. It was narcolepsy. Your kid's not making a chemical that allows him to stay awake. So he's not falling asleep because he's playing video games all night long. He's falling asleep because he can't stay. He doesn't have the chemical to stay awake in school. Interesting. Interesting. So how do we begin? Okay, so let's say we have a child who's having some of these falling offs, right? They're, yeah. they're starting to struggle in school. We can see their behavioral problems are rising. And, and in this day and age, most of us would say ADD uh, or ADHD. Uh, how do we begin to fix that sleep pattern that is causing it? If, if we, we want to rule that out first, and that's something that parents can do and individuals can do on their own without having to see a doctor first. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's number one is just creating a culture where we talk about sleep. We, for some reason, we don't. We don't talk about sleep. We don't talk about sex. It's all kind of private. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, kind of having dialogues like this about what does normal sleep look like is really helpful to parents. Parents can, parents have massive capacities for understanding, particularly about their own kids. That was really why I wrote the book was like, forget the doctors. Let's just go right to the parents and let them know what to look for. Because when it comes to the doctor treating your child, there's a very good chance that he or she has never had any kind of real training within sleep medicine. Mm. Um, I think there was a study back in 2013 that said 23% of doctors who treat kids have no training whatsoever in sleep. Wow. And these are the, some of the most common disorders. Two out of every three children, two out of every three kids, by the time they get to their teenage years, will have some sort of sleep disorder. That's, Wet the bed, nightmares, wow. sleepwalking, can't sleep, sleep too much, whatever. So these are not trivial little numbers. No, that's insane. So it's about educating the parents about what to look for. And then it's about arming that parent with a sense of you may have to advocate a little bit. Your kid, you think your, your kid has ADHD. That's a perfectly reasonable thought. So when you say to your doctor, I, I'm glad that we're pursuing this. How would you feel about maybe having him looked at by a sleep specialist first, just to make sure that that's, that's good. Okay. I would say if your doctor says no, get another doctor. I mean, to <laughs> me, that's a very reasonable sort of thing to, to rule out. Um, you know, and, 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 and that doesn't necessarily mean a sleep study. It just means 
let me sit down with somebody who has had more than the average four hours of sleep training over the last eight of their eight years of their career and really get into it. Now that sleep specialist, she might say, oh, I think the sleep of your kid is wonderful or do the sleep study and it's perfect sleep. Great. Check that off the box. That wasn't the issue. I'm sorry that Dr. Winter wasted your time and your money, but I do think it's a reasonable thing to do, especially if there's other signs of it. Like we spent, we spent the night in a hotel one time at a travel soccer game with our kid in the bed with us. And he never stopped moving all right. night long. Right. Or he talked in his sleep all night long. I mean, these are things that we want to pay attention to. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think to your point, I mean, that is a, it's such a minimally invasive thing to rule out right from the get go. Absolutely. And what? you, the parent have all the control over it, but yeah, it's pretty low hanging fruit. I mean, the worst case scenario is you're spending the night in a little room with some wires taped to your head, maybe, but generally speaking, just talking to the sleep specialist can be extremely helpful. What's a good first step if we, if we haven't gone to the doctor yet? We want to rule this out. Is co-sleeping for a night or two the best way to just kind of figure it out? Yeah, I mean, I think as long as the child is of age where you don't have to worry about rolling on top of them. And I yes, talk about right. co-sleeping a lot in the book. Yeah, I mean, and that's how these things kind of come to light sometimes is that the sleepover party or spending the night and you go to see grandma and you and your kids share a bedroom because grandma's apartment in Florida is pretty small, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And you're like, Oh my God, you know, this was a terrible. I mean, he didn't stop doing whatever right. all night long. Um, so I think those can be helpful. You know, I think the fitness trackers can be helpful too. You know, having you know, put a little Fitbit right. or a little withings device on him or the one that you wear. And so you get a sense of what your sleep kind of looks like. And mm -hmm. you throw that on your kid and you're like, his sleep looks awful compared mm -hmm. to mine. Mm -hmm. So those things aren't diagnostic by any stretch, but they do give some insight in terms of I've made all three of my kids wear this device and kid B is definitely different than kid A and C. Mm -hmm. So those, that information is really helpful. I mean, I love it when parent parents or patients bring that kind of data. Right. Again, we're not going to diagnose anything, but that has meaning. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's great advice. I want to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about a little bit about co-sleeping and some of the first steps we can do to improve our children's sleep, you know, uh, ambient noise, that kind of stuff. We're back with, with Dr. Chris Winter and talking about, uh, we're talking about before the break, we're talking about, you know, tracking your kid's sleep through co-sleeping or through, uh, through using your own like sleep device, whether it's a watch or a, or a Fitbit or whatever. Uh, so let's say we see that they're they're tossing and turning, or we get this sense that they're not like I, my four year old. I put him to bed, and without fail, at some point in the middle of the night, and at this point, I don't even notice it. He ends up in bed with me, like he ends up. He just he does every night, and it, it's not that disruptive. So I I I don't even notice it. I uh, he's not screaming or anything. He just in the middle of the night tick, 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 down this down the hallway into my room. One, how terrible is that? Uh, and, and, and two, is that a sign of, he doesn't ha he's not having behavioral problems or anything like that, but is that a sign of bad sleep or is that just he's four and he misses me? I think it's probably the latter. You know, the interesting thing about writing a book about kids and sleep is there's definitely sort of a blurred line between Dr. Chris and, you know, Chris, the father of three kids kind of thing. So if somebody says, look, you know, we like it when he comes and gets in bed with us he's not going to do it forever. My guess is he's not going to be waking up at some point saying, dad, I need help with my calculus. Like it's yeah. going to happen where he goes back to his right. bedroom. It's just a matter of how disruptive it is to you in terms of travel and keeping him where he wants to be. So mm -hmm. he's four, he can protect himself if dad kind of rolls over a little bit yeah. or something. So to me, it's just a, you know, a kid who finds it more comforting and more positive to be in your bed and he does his own bed. If you ever get to the point where you don't like it, you know, dress up like a clown and go to bed. <laughs> and my guess is he'll walk in, take one look at you and be like, well, I'd rather go back to where I was before because I don't need to sleep with Pennywise or whatever you look like in there. But no, I mean, it's just, you know, generally speaking, yeah. these are not terribly difficult behaviors sure. to get rid of at some point. Um, so if if you don't care, I don't care is, is, is something we often say, especially if you feel like he's getting the sleep that he needs. I mean, that's a difficult transition to sometimes, particularly if he's got older siblings, there can be, he was in his bed for a while and then he kind of regressed when mm -hmm. 
I started doing some traveling for work and, and sure. you know, older kid was getting more attention. So a lot of times those things kind of happen, but it doesn't mean he's sleeping poorly. Got it. Uh, you, you've talked a little bit about how things change as the kids age and on this huge swath between like infancy and adulthood. And yet we consider, we kind of really only teach parents how much kids should be sleeping in infancy. And then we kind of let them figure it out for themselves after that. Uh, at what point, you know, at what point do we drop the nap? At what point do we, um, uh, at what point is that co-sleeping evaluation legitimate versus, uh, versus being actually more fearful that we're going to crush our baby, those kinds of things. Yep. So the, the sleep needs are really fascinating to me, particularly for younger kids. So throughout our life, even into our senior citizen years, we're, we're generally always sort of losing sleep. Mm-hmm. And and we see that reflected very dramatically in kids, like your infant son versus your three-year-old son is a very different sleep situation. Right. I mean, and you're looking at 20 hours. Different. You're looking at 20 hours of sleep for the infant. Yeah. So, and the difference between your infant and your friend's infant born on the same day can be as much as like eight hours. Yeah. And and that's where you get into, if you're trying to, well, this is what worked for us and you're giving parental advice to the kid who needs eight hours less sleep than you do. Mm -hmm. You're already setting up some, some big problems there because that kid does not need to go to bed at seven o'clock and take two, three hour naps. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a different scenario. So I think it's important for kids or for parents to understand that each kid is different. Um, and I, I write in the book, you know, ver- each age group, what is the range of normal yeah, good, there? Good. Uh, which I think is very helpful. And, and and just to be clear, that's sleep per 24 hours. So it's the naps and the overnight Got period it. and falling asleep in the car seat or whatever. It's all kind of added together. You know, to me, when when does a kid drop naps? You know, it's really about trying to kind of focus on some goal. And when you've got three kids like you do, one of our goals was we always want to maintain the three to four o'clock rest time or whatever mm-hmm. it was. So that was the last nap that we wanted the youngest to drop because everybody in the house had a rest period. And you were talking earlier about what is dad, when does dad get to do his stuff? And so we had a thing that as the kids got older, even when they didn't want to sleep, that we said, okay, we're well, from three to four is rest time. Everybody goes to their individual rooms. And you're going to stay there for an hour. We don't care if you sleep, but you do need to be quiet, color, read, sleep if you want to. We don't care. It'll be over in an hour. At 4 o'clock, I'm going to come get you. Now, if you come out and waste my time, there will be a consequence in some way that sure. I will waste your time. Like this ice cream <laughs> that we go get every Saturday, daddy's not going to have time for the ice cream right. because you're taking up my time during the right. week coming out asking for seven glasses of water. So once you kind of establish that, we made it very clear that you did not need to sleep. There was never any talk of sleeping or napping. It was always resting because we didn't want to put kids under any kind of pressure to do it because more often than not, they would fall asleep if you just kind of let them be in their room by themselves. Mm -hmm. They'd look at their book and eventually kind of nod off. Now, the key is you really want to end that nap at the same time every day. It's very tempting as a father who's busy like you are, four o'clock rolls around and you got 20 more minutes to put the podcast together that you're just like, oh God, let them sleep. It's yeah. been quiet for the first right. time all day. And really trying to create that that structured end of the nap, I think is very important. In terms of co-sleeping, I, you know, it's a very hot topic. I, you know, And I think that now we're kind of in that weird area. I mean, is my, I'm a parent or I'm a doctor. Mm-hmm. All I would say is the American Academy of Pediatrics has finally come out and said, we probably should not be sleeping with our children until they get to at least the age of one. Mm. And, and and what they're saying is that prior to that, it's hard for a child to control their body, get their head in a position where they can breathe. Um, and I want to be very respectful to people who believe in co-sleeping. You know, when we lived in caves, we snuggled together and mm-hmm. look at animals and the way they sleep together. I, I get all that. But when you're in my seat and you've had patients lose children to this, in fact, we had somebody who works for me, their daughter lost a child because the husband rolled over on top of them. Mm. It, 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 the analogy I give in the book is when I watch these people who base jump or, you know, that guy who climbed, uh, El Capitan with yeah. no yeah. help, like a free forget, solo. Like, yeah. Free solo. Yeah. I'm not going to talk about him specifically. People like that. <laughs> right. If something awful happens to them, 
there's always this sort of mantra of we are devastated to lose this person who was very important to us. But the only alternative would have been for him or her not to do that thing. Mm-hmm. And that was not a life that they wanted to live. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that climbing was so important to their soul and who they were that it sucks to lose them. But at least they did something that they were just passionate about. Right. And I don't find that to be the case when these things happen. Sure. Um, that it's immense regret, immense guilt relationships just exploded because of blame. Yeah. And every one of them always says, I'll never do it again. So to me, it's one of those risks that is very, very low. Um, And we see this, I think, with COVID, the the nightly news where they interview the one person who got it, who didn't Mm -hmm. believe in it and Mm -hmm. said, I wish I had gotten vaccinated and wore a mask Mm -hmm. and didn't make fun of this virus that's very real because Mm -hmm. I almost died or my family member did die. Mm -hmm. So I always kind of see it like that, that it's probably not going to happen to your child, but it does happen. How would you feel about it if it did? Would you be good about that decision or can you just put them in a bassinet next to your bed for that first Mm -hmm. year Mm -hmm. just to protect them. To me, I think that's probably the safe thing to do. Yeah. I I mean, I, I, it's, I didn't know that the guideline had shifted to, to one or that it came out officially at one year. So that's, that's good to know. And yeah, like to your point, it's, it's such a terrifying tragedy when it does happen. Is it worth the risk? And, and I think, you know, for the answer for most of us to your point is, it's actually not worth the risk, and we really need to just take a deep breath. I don't think that it is. Again, yeah. and, and that's every patient is going to make that decision, but this idea that I've had you know, mothers say, I just am topless, and I sleep next to the baby, and the baby can nurse whenever it wants to. I mean, I, I think personally I would be such a threat. But I was such a heavy sleeper like when I was in residency mm-hmm. that my wife would not leave me alone with children if I did – she would set me with a pillow next to their crib. So if the baby woke up, he could like throw items off the crib onto my head to kind of wake me up because simply right. screaming or crying, well, I'd sleep right through it easily. Right. So people's thresholds or thermostats for what will wake them up very dramatically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's good to know, again, good to know your own your own weaknesses and your own strengths in that in that regard. Um, shifting gears a little bit here for a second, because obviously that, that's a very serious serious so what what is something that you see parents come in to see you with uh that sort of it made you write the book like the the thing that you that that made you want to correct this in how parents are perceiving their kids at, at, with regard to their sleep i think what what prompted the this is the book i've wanted to write for a long time because in my clinic as a neurologist i just see sleep problems no neuro, general neurology just okay. sleep in adults and kids so a couple things number one if i look back to when i started my practice the percentages of kids that I saw versus adults versus now there has been a sharp increase. So there was a crisis of sleep disorders in kids. I think well before the pandemic, the pandemic has just sent it over the ledge. Mm-hmm. Number two, is that because of like this, internalized stress and things like that? I, I think Disruption there's probably schedule. 10 different things. Yeah. Stress, uh, the lack of structure to your schedule because mom and dad are working from home. They can kind of get up around 10 if they mm-hmm. want to. You can get up, get on your Zoom class, mute the mic, turn the camera off mm-hmm. and sit there and keep sleeping in your bed. We don't go anywhere. We're not doing anything mm-hmm. that gives our body a sense of moving through time. Mm-hmm. So just a million things that are going on with that. Um, the one maybe positive that's come out of the pandemic is that there's been a school start debate for a long time. Mm-hmm. And the debate is kids need to go to school later. Um, and if they do, they'll sleep more. The counterpoint has always been, no, no, no. If you let them sleep later, they'll just go to bed later. And research coming out of the pandemic has said, no, they actually utilize the time to sleep more, which is really interesting. Mm. You know, so the other thing that that did it was seeing a 32-year-old woman come to my office and say, I've been a bad sleeper and tired all of my life. And then you diagnose them. And without fail, they'll have this look on their face that's a combination of, I'm so excited we figured out my problem, but man, I wish somebody would have figured this out before I dropped out of college Mm -hmm. because I was having the same problem then as I am now. And so, for instance, you know, we talked about narcolepsy having about a 10 to 15 year lag between when I come to my doctor with a problem and when it finally gets figured out. Yeah. And I really feel like 
you don't see that lag in kids of parents who have the disorder because they're looking out for it. Right. Um, and so I just felt like if I could write this book and really educate parents as to what a sleep disorder really looks like, then they'll they'll do the work. They'll get the patients to the people who need to get them to because parents do a great job of that. And it was a battle to get it done because every time you talk to your agent or your publisher, they'd be like, oh, there's way too many kid books about kids and sleep. I'm like, there are actually not any books about kids and sleep. You're looking at the idea of getting a kid to sleep through the night, which is super important, mm -hmm. as being a book about kid and sleep. No, no, no. That's one fraction of the pie of disorders of sleep in kids sure. and teens. We just don't talk about those things. And we really should because the more we talk and the more we normalize these things, the more we can get that lag time between when my kids started struggling and when we figured it out much shorter. Do you think that for people that uh, if they're not even parents and they read this book that they could maybe uh, understand their own sleep patterns better or as parents diagnose their kids, will it help them understand it better? It's so interesting you said that because somebody who'd read my first book said, oh, I just loved it. I liked your humor. So I read your second book. And this woman was a patient. She did have a sleep disorder. And she said that reading that book about kids really gave her a better sense of her own disorder and thinking about the things that she went through as a kid. There was one case study that really kind of resonated with her. And it's it's interesting when you diagnose an adult with a disorder that they've had since childhood. Mm -hmm. Again, we don't see it a lot outside of sleep. I, I don't meet a lot of people who are having seizures for 15 years <laughs> right, right. and then got diagnosed with epilepsy. Or one of my friends said, yeah, I've never met somebody as erectile dysfunction that 15 years later gets died. Well, that's what it was. <laughs> right. You know what it is right, like immediately, right? right. right? right. So it's, a, it's an unusual subset of people, but it's a real process of self-discovery. You're going around telling people, I, I'm sort of more of a worker type. I'm not the college type. Are you really not? Or are you very much the college type? You're just so incredibly sleepy during the day that you couldn't make it through college because your brain was screaming for more sleep all the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. That once you've gotten that squared away, how would college go now? So it's interesting how we sort of define our identities. And these sleep identities start when you're a kid. Mm -hmm. I hear parents all the time say, Jeffrey's my good sleeper. Sarah's a miserable sleeper. And Sarah's sitting right there playing with Legos. Like mm -hmm. she hears you talking about her. <laughs> and then she so internalizes that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I've never heard anybody say, Jeffrey's my great student. Sarah's dumb as dirt. Like nobody <laughs> ever says that, but we'll say it with sleep yeah. because we think about it differently. And my, my daughter said one time, she came home from high school and said, there is a boy who falls asleep in my history class every day. She said, I'm really worried about it, but nobody seems to really care. And I don't really, I don't know him. So I don't really know how to approach that. And then she came home really upset one day because she said one day he fell asleep and the teacher said, oh, everybody get up and let's leave. And when he wakes up, we'll all be gone. It'll be hilarious. And she said to me, I don't think we would have done that if he had had a seizure. Like right. if he was on the ground shaking, right. biting his tongue. Oh, let's all leave. And when he wakes up from the seizure, we'll all be gone because we don't treat sleep as a real medical disorder. Sometimes right. it's often more like a personality or a character right. flaw. Right. Uh, I think we have created this sort of apocryphal um notion of geniuses not needing sleep i don't know if you've seen some of this stuff but like uh we, we talk about how da vinci never slept and and benjamin franklin never slept but then uh, there's been more stuff that's come out because these guys usually some of these historical figures kept very detailed diaries where we see what their daily schedules are and it's just very distorted timing of sleep so yes. they would often stay up until two or three o'clock in the morning and then sleep for six hours and then you know, you know, work in the go to morning meetings and then sleep for several hours in the afternoon and then stay up until two o'clock in the morning. So you look at it and it turns out they actually slept uh, for eight plus hours. They just did it in really weird times when nobody else was doing it. Um, yeah, we call, yeah, we call it polyphasic sleep or biphasic sleep if it's in two blocks. And there's some sleep experts that think that's kind of the way we were supposed to sleep. Interesting. Divide your daytime into two wake periods, a little siesta in between divide your night into two sleep periods, a little wake period in between. And there's a wonderful book called A Day's Close, A Journey into Sleep of Yesteryear. I can never remember the title, and I love the book, written by a professor at Virginia Tech named Roger Eckert. 
um, really fascinating read about these kinds of ideas that you're talking about. It's kind of one of those books you read two pages, you're like, this kind of blows my mind. Right, I can't right, read right, anymore right, right now. I right. got to process this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just, it's just, yeah, I just think about it. Like we, we've been told again, there's so much, and you've, you've, you've poked a hole in a bunch of it today, but there's, there's so much, uh, common wisdom that has mm-hmm. been passed down. Like you need to get eight hours, eight clean, solid hours in a quiet room with a white noise machine and blackout curtains and all this. Otherwise the sleep doesn't count. Um, or, oh, yeah. or you have to wake up in, in one of these periods, in one of these phases where you're, you know, out of alpha and into this other wave sleep. Otherwise it'll be too abrupt to wake up. How, how much truth is there to some of those things? And, and, uh, versus just as long as you're not having behavioral problems, you're okay. I love the lore and mythology of yeah. sleep. That's yeah. one of the great things about sleep is it's this, it's squarely at this intersection of Greek gods mm-hmm. and real science. You mm-hmm. know, everybody has heard a crazy story from your father's grandmother that, you know, keep a knife under your pillow. It keeps the incubus away or something crazy <laughs> like that. And, you know, and no sleep after 2 a.m. is good sleep. And, you know, whatever, you know, only, only uh, if you sleep in past, you know, in the South where I live, if you sleep in past you know, eight o'clock, you're not destined for a very positive afterworld experience. You know, only the <laughs> the pious get up and get going in the morning. Yeah. So there's a lot of really interesting, and that's one of the things that's kind of fun about it because, you know, we, we've always been fascinated by sleep. So we kind of create these sort of explanations for it. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite books is a book called the trainer's Bible. It's by Essie Billick. He was the first person to sort of write down what an athletic trainer should do to help people. And there's about 30 references to sleep in it. And it's like, uh, for the hyper excitable athlete, one beer followed by one glass of port should be, you know, it's all these crazy <laughs> ideas about, you know, inebriating your athletes. And one of my favorite is if you have an athlete that doesn't sleep well, maybe he should get his own bed, not bedroom, his own bed. Like there were, you know, the catcher <laughs> yeah. and the pitcher slept together right, in one right, bed right, and the two right, infielders right. over here. So, you know, these things are great. And in my book, there was a, a book by a woman named Anastice Richardson. So throughout the book, I have, some of her writings from a hundred years ago. So she used to judge these baby contests at county fairs. You'd go and you'd bring your baby and set it up like with all the apple pies and cattle. And she'd come around and look at their nose and their skin tone and their hair and their teeth and mm-hmm. correctness of finish. Yep, and yep, she would yep. give a baby a first prize. And she was a big <laughs> believer that you couldn't win that contest if you weren't a good sleeper. So she had all these interesting ideas about how parents should help their kids sleep better. And so I kind of pepper those through there. I mean, generally these things have a little truth. You know, when somebody says, you know, sleep after midnight's not good sleep, what they're probably saying is that we as humans get the majority of our deep sleep in those first one to two hours. If you go to bed at 10, 10 to midnight's where you're gonna get the majority of your deep sleep. Now the sleep that happens after midnight's important too. But that deep sleep is a sleep where we make growth hormone and really restore and repair our body and create a situation where we are not sleepy the next mm-hmm. day. So my guess is, you know, little tidbits like that are coming from that. Keep a knife under your pillow to keep the incubus away. Incubus was this demon that came and sat on top of you at right. night and did terrible things to you, which was probably a, a primitive explanation of sleep paralysis, which mm-hmm. people have where they wake up and don't feel like they can move for a few seconds. So that was the explanation is you can't move because this unseen sexual spirit is sitting on top of you mm-hmm. wanting to take advantage of you. So if you have a knife under your pillow, it won't come around at night. So I love this kind of stuff, but you know, people can be quite off base when it comes to sleep. And sure. I have a friend who's an orthopedic surgeon. I'm like, do people come to you with ideas about bones that are crazy? <laughs> He's like, not really. Yeah. Like if it's sticking out of your leg, they don't like it. If it's in your leg, it's a good thing. Like, <laughs> but you know, sleep kind of opens itself up yeah. for all kinds of interpretations and everybody thinks they're a sleep expert. Well, we are, we are way off the rails here, but you know, you're, you're this idea of the, the incubus uh, or the succubus <laughs> on your, on your chest. You know, I, I read recently that like, all of these ghost stories from the Victorian era uh, can actually be attributed to uh, gas lamp mansions and mild carbon monoxide poisoning. So all I, of these, 
all of these like traditional um, evaluations of ghosts, right? These they, like what we think of when we think of traditional ghost stories is you know yeah. you feel this coldness come across your body, you uh, you have your sleep paralysis, um, all of the like visions yeah. and hallucinations can all be attributed to mild carbon monoxide poisoning. So you you'd, oh, that's so you'd be stuck inside and the the gas would be leaking in the house and you'd have this mild carbon monoxide and then you'd wake up the next day you'd get out of the house and during the day you'd you'd reoxygenate yourself and you'd be fine. Yeah, there's a similar stories about visions of God where a lot of them they were felt to be perfect descriptions of migraine phenomenon. Oh, Somebody wow. there's a painting like Catherine of Bingham and there's a picture of her, you know, looking to the heavens and seeing God. And they've drawn what looks like a pretty scientific picture of what's called a scintillating scotoma, which is when you get that flashing light feeling right before mm-hmm. a migraine. Mm-hmm. So I love these explanations where you kind of look back and you're like, oh, it was the gas like carbon yeah. monoxide yeah. that created all of these things that we think about today as being what you're supposed to see and feel when you see a ghost. Yeah, uh, I, I just kind of interesting. And again, going back to your, your sleep paralysis analogy. Well, Look, I think this is this, you've given us a lot to chew on uh, metaphorically and literally. Uh, you know, the book is is the rested child, uh, Doctor Chris Winter. We really appreciate your time. I'm going to ask you two last questions. I ask them to everybody. First and foremost, aside from buying the book, which there's a link to where you can buy it in the show notes, uh, how can people follow up with you? Um, you can follow me on Instagram or Twitter. Both of them are at Sport Sleep Doc S P U R T S L E E P D O C. Just because I work with a bunch of sports teams to help mm-hmm. them with their sleep, and um, um, and then I've got a, a webpage W Chris It's W Chris has got information on there. But I think the social media. I try to keep Twitter up to date with good articles and information about sleep. And Sleep dot com. I, I do some work for them too. They do. They have a great site. It's really a clearinghouse of really good vetted information about sleep. That's another thing you could check out, I think. I'll put a link to your social media accounts and to your website in the show notes. Uh, one last question, and I ask it to everybody. What is one thing in your area of expertise or not that we can all start doing today that will make our lives a whole lot better? Yeah, I think that um, paying attention to exercise first thing in the morning is probably the best thing you can do for your sleep at night if you struggle. Um, so really just trying to think about your morning. If you have kids or if you're an adult by yourself, starting it off with a dark bedroom, going to bright light in the kitchen, you're fasted to fed, you're cool, 65 degrees, 67 degrees in the bedroom to a warm environment, which is why exercise is great in the morning too, because it kind of warms our Mm -hmm. body. So starting that day where social interaction, you're by yourself and now you're interacting with family. All those things change is such a powerful indicator for sleep. The other thing to watch out for is light. Um, If you've got kids that have to be on their computers and technology and whatnot, that's a huge battle. Mm -hmm. But there's blue blocking glasses that you can get that can really help that light that they're getting from their screens start to affect them less in terms of their sleep at night. So and that's a very low-hanging sort of fruit intervention there, I think. I promise I am going to let you go, but I have to ask this question. So I have experienced anecdotally great results from blue blocking glasses in terms of just eye strain and all that stuff. Me but too. I've, but I've also read a lot of articles that say it's all hooey and that it's all psychosomatic and it's not actually doing anything. We just think that it does and that works. Do, do, you, do you really think that they work? I do. I mean, here, here's something that's kind of a fun uh, experiment. Um, turn off all the lights in your house one night um, and let the sun go down. Have dinner, let the sun go down. And now this, it's like the power's gone out in your home. Mm-hmm. No TV. Everybody gets a headlamp. There's little headlamps you get mm-hmm. at the checkout store at the hardware store. So everybody gets a headlamp, including your kids. They can do whatever they want to. It just can't be anything electronic. So you can read, you can draw, we can tell stories, we can play Monopoly or you know, Settlers of Catan. Do that and, and pay attention to how difficult it is to stay awake. And for people who camp, they'll tell you that. Like, we camp every now and then. When right. I do, I'm always like, all right, I'm going to get the kids in the tent. I'm going to get my David Bowie biography out. I'm going to put my headlamp on. I'm going to read until 11, 11.30 when I normally go to bed and mm-hmm. go to and like at 9.15, I can barely stay right, awake. Right, 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 right. We are, that, that diminishing light is really powerful. So I understand, you know, some of the d- debate about, well, is it truly this blue wavelength or whatnot? But if you diminish light or put those blue blockers, just try it. 
after dinner, everybody put the blue blockers on and leave them on, you know, six o'clock, seven o'clock. Mm -hmm. See how you feel at eight or nine o'clock. One time I gave a lecture in Denver and at three o'clock I put them on. That was the lecture. Put it on. I was talking about it. That has left them on for some reason. They kind of forgot they were on. Mm -hmm. And some guy was like, oh, you still got the blue blockers on. I'm like, oh, yeah, I do. So I just left them on. By seven o'clock, I could barely see straight. I was so tired. <laughs> so I had to take them off because yeah. I was like, I got my flights now for another two hours. I'm going <laughs> to fall asleep here. So what I would say about that is try it yourself. Sure. Um, even if you're not a believer, I like people who aren't believers to try things yeah. because when they say, oh, my gosh, it really worked. I tend to believe them more than the people who are buying into it. But mm -hmm. I do believe it. It's hard to stay awake in the dark. I told that to an NBA player who was really nervous about the playoffs. I sent him a headlamp. I said, no lights. Just put this headlamp on so you don't trip over something and break your leg. But And he was like, I, I really slept much better you know, having all the lights turned off, which is extreme. But it does prove to people that you know we are beholden sometimes to lights. So right. smart light selection in your house is very important. Uh, uh, you, I'm assuming like softer white and, and, and that kind of thing is the reason why the they also make lights that don't have blue green in them. Interesting. So if you get a little spectroscope and look at, I talk about this in the book, how you can evaluate your lights, just go around with the spectroscope and look at all your light bulbs every now and then you'll find one that's just these weird bands of color that have no blue green in them even though they look the same color as an iridescent bulb. So those are the bulbs that you'd want to have in a place where you're trying to facilitate sleep. Lots of blue-green in places where you want to facilitate wakefulness. Um, does the headlamp work because it's always pointing, it's light always pointing away from you that's reflecting off of surfaces, but you never get it directly into your eyes? Correct. And they're relatively dim. You know, and, you know if, if you're just operating on a flashlight on your head, mm -hmm. every other light in the house is off it's still very dark in terms of the amount of light that's entering your eye. So you can sit there and read a book and do your homework. And it's really, I mean, my wife and even when the power goes out, we're like, that's okay. We'll just, we have laptops, they have batteries. Let's go watch an episode of, you know, whatever. And then we, we, we never make it through sure, that episode. Sure, 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 and it's sure. nine o'clock. Yeah. Um, because we, we really respond positively to that light. Roxanne Pritchard's our sleep researcher up in Minnesota. I love her to death. She takes her kids camping the week before school every Ooh. year just to get them. Interesting. It's a great one. You can just take, you know, set up the tent in the backyard and take your little group of kids out there. And, and that really gets them on that sleep schedule. That's much more conducive to that early day of school. We have been just trying the yelling at them approach. School starts next week. You got to get in bed. It has not been successful. So at least this is, this is something to try. Yeah. Yeah. Just go around and turn off a lot of lights in your house and watch what happens. Dr. Chris Winter. The book is The Rested Child. Uh, we really appreciate your time today. It's been really fun. Hey, I really appreciate it, Gib. It's, it's been a pleasure. That's it for our show today. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us out a lot. Also, you know, I've been getting some feedback from you guys, and I appreciate it. You can follow up with us on social media. Uh, I am Facebook.com slash Gib Gerard or at Gib Gerard on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, John is, of course, Facebook.com slash John Tesh. Uh, he's also at John Tesh underscore IFYL on Instagram. Uh, a link to all of those in the show notes. I try to respond to every DM or mention of the show, uh, even the negative ones, because ultimately I do the show for you guys. So thank you so much for listening.